0: Looking for, um, you know, tail risks and looking for tail events, right? The biggest tail event of all would be the public recognition and disclosure that there is non-human intelligence interacting with humanity, right? That would be top of the list.
1: You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension, a dimension of sound. (laughs) dimension of sight a dimension of mind you're moving into a land of both shadow and substance of things and ideas you've just crossed over into the twilight zone
0: what the f*** this cannot be
2: hey, ladies and gentlemen Asif Capitalist returns to you for the folk in the cheap seats, we got 30 minutes to woo you and convince you to take a Patreon, get the back catalogue, get the one and a half hours that I'm going to spend. Probably less now, actually, but we're with the wonderful at Matthew underscore pints, we're going to go deep undercover. We're going to pretend we're intelligence officers. We're only pretending, but Matthew has been trained to consider big kind of tail like situations, which is why I've asked him back on. Matthew, tell us more. Welcome.
0: Thanks for having me again. I uh, wish I was where you were. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm in uh, I'm in Northern Virginia, uh, the the belly of the beast, uh, where I've been for about the, the past 12 years, helping the government and other private sector kind of think through all the bad things that can happen, uh, mostly focused on geopolitical risk, cybersecurity risk, emerging technology risk. Um, and those things are certainly uh, not going away.
2: They certainly aren't. And what you you were a a graduate of philosophy? What was the other subject you took? Philosophy and physics. Philosophy and physics. Were considering, um, I guess, PhD at al, and then and then thought, mm, and you had to look around, and you go, Tell me what happens. You you get taken into a program. You you get you get formal training in the evaluation. Of tail like scenarios. I mean, can you can you expand upon your indoctrination?
0: Yeah, I wish that the government had like a formal training program. Uh, it, it was really why they hired consultants who could help them develop those types of methodologies. So they have a number of areas over decades that they've you know looked at very closely on that sort of left tail risk scenarios, principally around like nuclear war. Um, But what's happened in the past 15, 20 years has been a lot of other risks have sort of started to crowd into that territory. And there's two different worlds of the government of like natural disaster, emergency management planning and like nuclear war and like highly disruptive scenarios started to merge. Um, And as any government bureaucracy, you know, that is a very messy process. So a lot of the things that I did over, over the number of years was basically trying to bridge these different. Uh, worlds together and come up with approaches and for both analysis as well as program um, and technology assessment um, but yeah there's no roadmap there's no master's program it was very much um, solving problems on the fly
2: quite okay so so you know so how did you take it forward mm-hmm. you know what what refinements uh, did you introduce I mean you know how, how does one methodically set about trying to answer these uh, preposterously small probability events, which of course have tremendous ramifications were they to come true.
0: Yes. Uh, Often there's the analytical side of the house. And then there's the like realities of how political decisions and budgets and programs actually run. (laughs) And so I spend time on both sides of that fence on the, on the analytical side there's sort of two approaches uh, in general. One is sort of modeling and simulation and the other is like um, exercises and they all have their pros and cons and, and limitations. Um, but, you know, I've done both, right? So modeling and simulation, you you know, construct a formal model of that system or that problem set and you build in assumptions, but you can at least try to run the model as um, precisely as possible. But, as, as you know, with any any model, these these systems fundamentally don't respond well um, uh, in in the laboratory or on your computer system to and correspond to reality. And so that's why you do exercises, which is much more trying to simulate plausible real world scenarios and then try to test real systems, how they respond under those conditions. Like, what would you do in these situations and put real systems, plans, policies, procedures, you know, to the test? And you then see what happens when you put those people and those systems and those technologies and you make them go for real um, under certain conditions. And then you see how they perform. Um, So it's more uh, a matter of evaluating how prepared and responsive existing systems are to these, you know, tail risk scenarios than trying to predict or forecast their probability. The assumption by the government, at least in the government space, is we just need to be prepared for the what ifs. And so we're going to role play and exercise and evaluate what happens to our systems, what happens to our plans if we get hit by those what ifs. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, they take, you know, some account of the probabilities of these different disasters. But as you know, like there's just things in those fourth quadrant probability distributions that you're sticking your finger in the air. um, And it's where they're they're catastrophic enough if they do happen, that it's worth spending several million dollars um, putting the government through its paces.
2: So I imagine there's just an absolute massive data dump going on every single day. Um, Does the system actually create like a doomsday clock, like with a probability of event? Is there there a spreadsheet with probabilities (laughs) that's changing by the second? Um, No, no. The
0: government does not have uh, a single point of uh, of analysis on all these different things. They're very much siloed off into very specific areas people that are worried about natural disasters or are an area one area people that are worried about cyber attacks or a different area people that worry about pandemics or in a different area people that are worried about terrorist attacks and a different area so you know at the leadership level they all get briefed you know on those high level um, assessments and and plans but there's no synoptic god's eye view of any of this it's a complicated messy dis- dis- discombobulated mess
2: what, what, there must be a procedure, however, in terms of uh, upping the ante that you're in one of those silos, mm-hmm. and 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 you're a specialist and you're beginning to agitate that you know the the systems begin the rooms beginning to shake, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, and it has to be kind of um, that the hierarchy it has to be involved. I
0: mean, yeah, I mean the government has tried to build things like this. The most recent incarnation is a as a, an, a division of CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, called the National, national Risk Management Coordination Center, the NRMCC. Um, I think that's its current name. <laughs> um, and it's, its genesis, its motivation was to kind of be the analytical nerve center looking across like all the different critical infrastructures that support, you know, national defense, the economy, public health, you know, the basic functions upon which our society runs and trying to construct risk models, evaluation frameworks and simulations to figure out Okay, if the power grid goes down here, what does that do to the fuel distribution system? What does that do to emergency communications? What does it do to X, Y, and Z? And they've done some, I would say, initial steps to collect that data, build those frameworks, and do certain models. But the vision, I think, of having like this big old board with all the big flashing lights and know how you're going to be able to predict, you know, the complex cascades and all these different scenarios, like they, these are just very, um, you know, intractable complex systems where, you know, tipping points lurk in the darkness and you don't know how a failure in one place may or may not cascade, what invisible buffers or tripwires exist. They've tried to do that. Um, they're better at it within a particular set, within a particular system. So within the power grid, within, you know, kind of the technical infrastructure backbone of the internet, within the financial system and kind of the, the key flows um, between, say, the Fed and the primary dealers, like, they've picked different parts of these systems and they've really done the detailed data collection to understand the key nodes and the failure points. But like at like the macro level, the interdependencies across across those is 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 a black box.
2: Okay, so I guess my, my mind is kind of yelling at me, Palantir, 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 you know, like Peter oh. Thiel backed Trump and he must have got something back in return. Can you say, what does what Palantir do in the context of what you described?
0: Palantir and, you know, I'm not familiar with all of their different software services. I mean, I've I've interacted with some of their work and some of their some of their their tools. Um, they have really good like intelligence analysis tools. Um, so specifically for when you're dealing with a mosaic of complex, ambiguous information, especially say you're in the CIA or you're in the Defense Department and you're trying to track a terrorist network and you're looking at, you know, intercepts of communications, you're looking at, you know, meeting reports of people in a different city, you're looking at travel documents, you're looking at a whole bunch of different stuff and you're trying to understand what does it all mean, right? Like, they've developed really sophisticated tools to help analysts put those pieces together. But that's like tactical intelligence. That's, as far as I can tell, they don't really have a solution for like, what you might call like strategic intelligence or what in the military is called strategic, like indicators and warning, right? Like What are we going to look for, say, in in the Taiwan scenario? Like, how are we going to detect the uh, orders in the Eastern theater? How are we going to look for, say, you know, deviations from the norm of like uh, VIP travel around Zhang in Beijing, right? What are we going to look for of a characteristic little little, uh, uh, deviations from the norm that would like raise the alert? I'm sure there's a lot of effort going into that. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm not sure if Palantir is involved in that. They may or may not be. Um, But that's sort of where you would want to apply those more sophisticated analytical, say, you know, AI-based tools to to help you with that pattern recognition, to to pull yourself as far left as you can.
2: So you you mentioned Taiwan. Uh, One of the reasons for having you back is, and forgive me, it must be very distracting. I'm being attacked by mosquitoes. Um, But um, this time last year, I was having lunch at Eden Rock with my buddy here in St. Bart's. And my buddy's being a tremendously successful hedge fund manager. Um, and he kind of describes it in a kind of woozy manner, but he has a contact, contacts CIA. Um, and from time to time, they would uh, reach out and they would introduce him to a kind of sleeper guy in Singapore. And, and they would talk and talk about markets. And they basically wanted to use my friend, as a filter, like you're successful, you're smart. Um, talk to this guy, and then talk to us. Like, you know, how does it resonate with you? What's the actionable points? How would you take this uh, information forward? And over the years, and we're talking going back twenty five years, uh, this this guy's info has been spot on, and and therefore it was quite a shock because it was a year ago, and it it really wasn't. Common consumption but the sleeper guy in singapore was saying code red with regards he said you know china is definitely gearing up for taiwan okay and this is why i guess the cia were putting my friend there and so we, we were confronted with this guy's record is second to none he has to be listened to he's an authority um but what do you deal how do you deal with that information, you it's the gap in the curtain which, and it reveals something profoundly grotesque. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we were to have a, a full-on invasion or conflict between the, the two enormous uh, age, uh, superpowers, um, it would be not only the most significant financial event, but it would be the most significant event in my, my, my life. You know, markets would close down. And, and we were trying to get, we're, we were saying, well, what probability? And we were saying, you know, given the stature of the the source, we were kind of moving our doomsday clock to 5%. And and we're saying, wow, a 1 in 20 event of, and we're talking about between now and really the end of 25 was the timeline presented. A 1 in 20 event of of the most profound, life-changing event in my life and everyone else's life on this planet now. Yeah? Um, and now, of course, it's become more common currency. And then I was reading foreign policy uh, article, and they'd, they'd gone to all the academic professors that it's their business to conceive and to discuss contentious matters. And their probability was 25%, one in four, which is, you know, blew my mind out. And of course, the final piece is Elon Musk was on TV a few, like no more than two weeks ago, and yeah, he's four standard deviation intelligent person. Um, he clearly moves in another, you know, corridor of power than than mere mortals. He's enormously embedded in China, and he's saying, "Is this This is going to happen." Are you concerned at all about the growing belligerence between China and the U.S.?
1: Um, I think that should be a concern for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you're right. I think yeah. it is
2: shared by many people who run large organizations and smaller ones. Do you think, for example, China will will make a move to take control of Taiwan?
1: The official, the official The official policy of China is uh, that um, Taiwan should be integrated. Mm-hmm. One does not need to read between the lines. one can simply read the lines. Do you think (laughs) so? I I think there's a certain there's some inevitability to to the situation. That would not be good for Tesla, conceivably, or for any any company in the world, frankly. Yes, for any company in the world, I I think most almost no no one realizes that uh, uh, the Chinese economy and and the global the rest of the global economy are like conjoined twins. Uh, it, it would be like trying to separate conjoint twins. That, that's the severity of the situation. Um, and it's actually uh, worse for, for a lot of other companies than it is for, for uh, Tesla. I mean, I'm not sure, not sure where you're going to get an iPhone, for example. Um, I mean Apple's recently started doing some, some sort of small amount of production in, in India, but it's tiny. It's compared tiny, to sh-
2: not to mention an advanced semiconductor chip if they take over Taiwan Semi.
1: Correct. I mean, so, you design your own chips, but you
2: manufacture them at Taiwan Semi too, right?
1: Uh, we do some, we do, we do, we use Samsung anti-SMC. Right. Um, but uh, but <laughs> yeah. you seem to think it's, it's likely to happen. I'm simply saying that that is their policy. And I think you should take their word seriously. <laughs> they mean it. So before I deal with the consequences,
2: talk to me about that.
0: Yes, uh, I think you're right to be concerned. Um, it's certainly top of mind for many of our our, our Fortune you know 100 clients. Um, just in the past year after the Ukraine invasion, this has moved to the center of the risk aperture for C-suites and boards. Um, everyone is posturing for the what if, um, but they're also posturing for what they expect to just be a general deterioration and then the bilateral relationship on a, on a structural basis. There might be upswings. Um, as people try to you know, pull back from the brink. But everyone's posturing for you know, what goes by different names, decoupling, de-risking, China plus one, technology war. you know, It is heating up across all domains. The Taiwan scenario is the um, sort of most uh, extreme limit of, of where that deterioration relationship can go. So I sort of reason to that tail risk by trying to reason through what would be a pattern of deterioration of the relationship um, that would get us to that point. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of like commentary about like public statements made by the Chinese military, made by President Xi himself, that seem to indicate um, you know their willingness to up the ante uh, on, on on lots of different domains, and that seem to be putting them putting themselves in a position where they might have the capabilities to execute the invasion by say 2026, 2027, if ordered by President Xi. And so the things that you're seeing kind of sub Rosa are what you would expect if the military is putting in place um, the capabilities and the posture to be able to execute the order if given. So there was a you know recent story a few weeks ago, Microsoft came out with the volt typhoon attribution to PLA military, um, basically doing um, hacks of a whole bunch of uh, telecommunications and other military infrastructure associated with Guam. Right. So that is what you would do if you are developing capabilities so that when you need to, you know, execute a military operation, you want to take out U.S. military command and control, try to, um, um, you know, hinder our our logistics and mobilization and, um, and, and communication in, in that event. So, you know, th- there are indicators like that happening on lots of other areas that don't say that she has given the order, but that the military and the intelligence services are like putting in place and investing lots of resources so that they can execute that operation with the highest degree of confidence as possible, and they're they're relentlessly charging in that direction. So there's like the military capabilities, the intelligence capabilities, the cyber capabilities, and in the financial dimension, you know, a lot of things they're doing are trying to, um, you know, aggressively, you know, mitigate their exposure to Western sanctions. Um, they're trying to create, you know, alternative. Um, financial rails and settlement systems so that they can't be, you know, de-swifted with as much, um, you know, dramatic uh, penalties as as, 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 as as Russia suffered. So all the things they're doing are, you know, look like they are trying to make themselves as resistant as possible to geo-economic coercion from the West, getting themselves the best military fighting shot. And then it's a function of President Xi himself deciding as a matter of political strategy and personal you know, legitimacy, whether he wants to go for it. And we will, will probably not know that, you know, this is all classified, like the details, but like basic open source estimates is that you maybe get six to nine months of lead time for an all out invasion, because if you want to do the out invasion, you need to mobilize, you know, a, a, a ton of people, a ton of material. You might try to disguise that with an exercise like Russia did. Um, but at that point, like, the intelligence collection, you know, would probably pick up on the fact that this is like a real order. Um, you know, the Russia example is a really good one where, like, you know, France and Germany were skeptical up until the point where, like, the tanks crossed over. Right. And meanwhile, the, the Americans were saying, no, he's going to go for it. No, Macron is, flying to, is, is, is flying to Moscow and is trying to make a last minute deal. And the Americans are like, it's happening. Like, you're wasting your time. Um
2: I mean, so, the, the, the U.S. pre-announced it. They're like, they're going into, yeah. <laughs> going into the whole folks, you know.
0: I mean, and honestly, like, we were telling our clients in November, December, like, this is, you know, much more likely than not. You better get out. Um, and just because, like, you know, there's a lot of things that are like, you have to be sort of intentionally um, thick to, you know, think that he's putting 200,000 troops on there for a bluff. Um, so that's, I guess, a wide, I haven't answered your question. Like, what's the probability, right? Like, everyone's guessing. I think putting a 5% number, a 10% number, a 20% number, you can make solid arguments that those are all fair estimates, right? I'm not sure, though, there's like... A,
2: you know. No, they're preposterous. Yeah. They're yeah. preposterously high numbers. I mean, it should be a basis point. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the most significant life-altering event for every adult on this planet. Um, yeah, no, and this is,
0: this is the... This is the part where human psychology and maybe um, uh, psychological aversion to considering down these sorts of scenarios is just especially within the worldview and life experience of everyone living is we've never confronted scenarios where the world system just decides to, you know, break itself for no apparent rational reason. Um, But if you take a long view of history, humanity does this to itself on a pretty regular basis. So if you're like, okay, like what makes this time any different? Are we so, um, you know, uh. Uh, enlightened people that we're going to uh, avert the patterns of mutual suspicion and security dilemmas that have um, uh, you know led to a catastrophic uh, disaster in you know a lot, it, it, uh, with a regular periodicity. I don't know. Like like I, I'm putting on my, my my pure analyst hat on and I see you know given the trajectory of the relationship, the status quo power, resi- you know, doing everything we can to basically try to contain uh, a rising challenger. State that, you know, actually poses more of a economic military um, threat to us than than any uh, than any uh, peer adversary um, in American history. Right. Like this is, you know, they're 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 much more capable um, as an adversary, uh, especially given the limited objectives they have. They're not trying to conquer all of Western Europe. Right. They're just trying to take an island, you know, just off the just off their coast. And we're eight thousand miles away. Um, And so, you know. This is where, you know, you get into the scenarios of there is a sense I, I, I detect among certain folks inside DC that at a, at a certain point, um, we're just going to let them take it. Uh, we're not going to go to war over Taiwan, um, but we're going to counter, at least in our mind, with a massively reinvigorated um, sort of NATO of the Pacific that may come with a nuclear, you know, extended nuclear umbrella, maybe even nuclearization of Japan, South Korea, et cetera, even though we say that that's not going to happen. Um, and that brings South Asia much closer to the form. India comes off the fence, turns the quad into much more like a military containment block. And we sort of hold the line after Taiwan. But the whole point is we need to hold the line. You know, people buy into the whole idea of like a domino effect that if you they get Taiwan, they control the shipping, they control, you know, leading technology. And then the whole security architecture of, of the Pacific falls apart and America's, you know, status as a global power will inevitably collapse. Um, I mean, there's an argument for that, but there's an argument for, you know, it's, it's really bad. <laughs> it takes, a, you know, the, the, Western, the Western system takes a massive hit, um, but then you just sort of get into a, you know, a new Cold War 2.0 and there's a proxy wars, little covert, covert you know, tits for tats, but we don't, but we avoid a big conf- conflagration. But even in that scenario, like economically, that's what we have to think through, like, like, this is not going to be a rosy day in the park, right? Like, like, the, the real question is, the basic economic system, as you're well aware, like, requires the systematic integration between the US and the Chinese economies, like, you know, balancing each other's surpluses and deficits, recycling capital flows in each other's asset markets. Um, and basically, like, that's how and the production process for the world is run out of China, basically. So, like. The military dimension could be could maybe avoid total, you know, catastrophe, including up to including nuclear war. But that doesn't mean like the global economy survives. Right. Like that's that's the thing. That's why I think Jamie Dimon was over there. I think they there was a perception that Funny
2: thing they, you have to cite Jamie Dimon and, and not the what's he called? Minchkin Minchkin or whatever, or the yeah. the director of the CIA. Like, no, it's Jamie and Jamie we trust. Yeah, I mean this
0: is a little bit inside of baseball, but like there was a perception. So we hit them with the October seventh tech controls. China saw that as basically a declaration of almost war, right? Because they see these things as interconnected. Like they don't separate out these different policy areas. And they saw this as being like a a a like a digital kind of Pearl Harbor attack on their economic prospects because they're cutting they're being cut off from the leading edge technology that's really going to be essential to all the, of the fifth industrial revolution technology.
2: Can, can you say something to that mm-hmm. uh, the, and substantiate the American fear with mm-hmm. Huawei? Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, with the TikTok, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of, the US line is preposterous. It's very kind of Trumpian, let's not really think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have yet to discover um, an article explaining what the natural national security threat from having TikTok on your phone is, you know, the servers, et cetera are, are American and whatever fears that you have could be contained by the iOS operating system um, on, on the phones. It just seems to be a, a it, it does seem to be a kind of um, what well, is racism isn't the term, but it's, it's that kind of set, setting yourself up for conflict between two cultures.
0: Yeah, it's, it's certainly much more of a politically driven thing than a security driven thing. I mean, I mean, a- any app can have a malicious update pushed to it, um, but there's no evidence that anything like that has been pushed. And there's actually other Chinese apps that have exploited, say, the permissions on Android to collect information on their on their users. But that was just, you know, like crappy managers at the company trying to like, still did it and people do that all the time, right? It's not like a national, I mean, it's not like the Chinese government is like, hey, we're gonna go steal your data from your phones. Um, so I, yeah, the TikTok thing is much more about I think more of the influence operation perspective, the idea they control the algorithm, that sort of thing. But I think it's more of a. It's I wouldn't rank at the top of the list when it comes to the strategic risks from China by any means. Um, so oh, just, so it has a
2: huge. It, it's almost no strategic risk, um, yeah. but it but it's wanton commercial vandalism.
0: Yeah, but this is really where the, what is truly strategic is the chip control. So on October seventh, yeah. the United States basically said. You know, no one can sell you know any chip or chip technology to Chinese uh, entities without first getting you know approval from the Commerce Department, and they basically are not going to approve any of that. Um, and they ban any American from supporting any Chinese efforts in these areas, and they set like technology thresholds, like the nanometer size for these leading edge um, sort of fabrication capabilities and 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 GPUs for chips and other semiconductors, with the explicit intent of maximizing the possible lead that technology that the Western technology block has over China, um, across, not just like, I mean, they use weapons of mass destruction is like the nominal justification. Cause these are like used in, in superconducting simulation, a uh, super simulations for, for nuclear weapons. But it's really about holding them back from AI, holding them back from doing things related to, um, uh, like other things in their hypersonic uh, missile program. Uh, so it's really trying to like, hold them back from advanced technology across the board. There's big debate over how far this can go. Um, and it's really a function of the United States feeling a, an, an acute geoeconomic anxiety over China's rising power. And we're going to use whatever levers we have to, to hold them back. And China sees this as a threat, right? As like, essentially, almost like a techno blockade against them. Uh, and they want to react in sort of potentially asymmetric ways. Um, and so so my, I,
2: I, I wanted to, uh, we, we do, we uh, do, um... Just as the, just as we're going to get the big reveal from Matthew, he's going to give us his probability. Here we are. We're on the edge <laughs> of global conflict. But like you people in the cheap seats, you got, you got to leave. You know, you, you, you haven't subscribed for the rest. This is, we're going, it's coming down. People, yeah. please, uh, we'd love you to participate, but we thank you for having been with us for 30 minutes. We're going to c- keep this going um is fascinating um and 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 come on line get on board get the patreon enemy bye guys matthew